Hi, my name's Marcia. I'm from Nevada City. And my question is about choiceless awareness <laughs> and how, when things come into the foreground and go into the background, how that kind of fits in with your attention and where you put your attention. And there was another part. Um, how... how you allow that to happen. Mm, I can't think of the other part of it. Anyway. <laughs> um, using this with choiceless awareness, it's a little, it, it does fit in here, but so much of this um, structure works with choosing. So this is about choosing breath and then using breath as a stable place. In choiceless awareness, um, when you don't have like a, a specific place you're putting your attention. It takes a while to stabilize, but then it universalizes very quickly because it's not just about the breath. Your mind is seeing that all things come and go. And so the first thing you have to do is get a type of samadhi in choiceless awareness. So you have to stabilize, gladden, develop intimacy, non-distraction, while you're also not necessarily choosing uh, a specific place for your attention to be. And so you're, depending on how you're using trustless awareness, it could be um, letting your attention go where it wants or actually trying to be aware of all six sense doors and letting the information just sort of come to you. There's still a, a time where you're using wisdom to develop stability, stability of intimacy. And then you still have to kind of um, the intimacy, if, if there's enough intimacy, you'll discover reality. So um, you don't necessarily have to prime yourself into these insights. You just keep developing intimacy. And at some point you can't deny these insights. I was talking to Utejaniya, um, Saito Utejaniya in Burma. And because I had done more coaxing and I had been taught to coax these things along, I asked him about that and he said, um, if you have to coax the mind, it's not ready for the insight. So in his practice, he doesn't, he has to just keep deepening your intimacy and let reality teach you how things actually work. And <clears throat> there could be some truth to that. I, I know that my mind keeps on insist, insisting on its realities long after there's tons of evidence. But his point was that, well, that means your mind isn't ready yet. And so you could, you could drag my mind to water, but you can't make it drink. You could drag it to the insight and hold its nose right at the, and drink this insight, and it just won't do it. Why won't it do it? And this touches a little bit in my mind, it overlaps a little bit with Western psychology and trauma therapy, where you may have some bad habits, but they're your habits, and they're there for a reason, and you can't just opt out of them. That they're, if you have a tenacious habit, it's doing more for you than you might realize. And so you can't just opt out of some patterns. There's a deeper process that has to be worked out. So I've gotten off your question a little bit, but um, the root of it is developing some type of samadhi, the steady flow of attention that's intimate with the field that it's passing through, and then letting that field of intimacy 
inform you. Um, if, if that were true, that anybody with profound insight would come up with the same Buddhist truths. And I still, I think that there are certain belief systems that go unexamined. Very brilliant people have believed in racism or sexism. Very brilliant people, you know, the truth was there, but still the belief system wasn't questioned. So I'm, I'm not sure I agree with Saito Tejaniya. <laughs> that I think sometimes you actually have to, it's like, it's impermanent. Look, it's like, well, I don't like looking at it. So I'm just going to deepen my intimacy elsewhere. I'm going to be over here on this new thing. And now we're here on this new thing. And oh, that broke my, but where's this thing over here? I think this mind is happy to keep its comfort, no matter how much pain it goes through to keep the habits. So, so you answered my other thought, which yeah. was about resistance. Right. And that's what was happening, was a kind of a resistance by just broadening awareness right. to the point where it was, it just couldn't settle. Right. Which is why we get into the seven factors of awakening, because if you want, if, it, uh, if you want to speed up this, the fruition, the seven factors of enlightenment are the Buddha's um, system. He has all these little systems. The seven factors of awakening are the system of mental factors that when they ripen, you're more likely to have um, progress on your path. And it's really not until all seven of them are ripe and profound and working together that you're able to actually let go of old habits and views and move into new ones. And uh, that's why that list is at the bottom of the, this sutta, that's why it's at the bottom of the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, <clears throat> I had a, a thought as I was walking and um, each step, paying attention to each step, <clears throat> I don't know what this was, but uh, you start to notice each step is a beginning, is an end, and each step you let go of, and each step is a new step. And so I got into a moment where every step was letting go of the past and being in the present and the future. And I noticed that what, what, what was happening is that in the process of letting go of every past and accepting every present future, you're in the present. And that's the, I guess the thought is that that's not impermanent. The present is always there. So you start to see each step is always there and you start to notice each step and you see your foot and notice that, you know, that's going to decay and die. And, um, but that's just another step and the present goes through all those steps and all the different lives. So I was feeling that and, um, and, um, and the first bell went off and uh, then the second bell went off and then I turned around to watch the third bell and I was feeling that thing of being in the present preparing for the next thing to come with impermanence and be gone and watched the uh, thing hit the bell and at that moment had a uh, enormous emotion came over me and I, I don't know what that was. Mm. It lasted for about, well it's kind of still there but 
immediately I start thinking, you know, how, how to not let that dissipate. But, right. Well, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. And so um, there's, there's something you said that I don't think I'm, I may not be answering you, what your observation, but there's a distinction I made in my mind. Um, and it starts by, I framed this one question to uh, somebody else in a very joking way, but it's actually was more profound than I thought. I asked somebody once if they were a momentarian or a presentarian. <laughs> that in Buddhism there's presentarianism and there's momentarianism. Some people believe in the, in the eternity of the present moment. And that if you pay attention, it's always now. And so you can actually attune yourself to the eternity of now. And it, everything gets very divine when you actually attune yourself to the present of now. I mean, the eternity of now. And so this nowness, <clears throat> and that's, that's, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of similar wisdom in presentarianism and momentarianism. Um, the only thing is, I think momentarianism is more radical in some ways because presentarianism still, the present moment is still a refuge. And I think you can actually get so attuned to it that even as most of you, if not all of you, is passing away in its death moment, it's still fine because the present moment carries on and you're now not a part of the present. I still think that's kind of threatening to the one going through. So momentarianism is, is more the Vipassana world. And the Samadhi world, I think, actually gets people into this beautiful divine presence but I think what we do when we really start to look at Anicca, and Anicca begins to start to um, come out of everything, and everything begins to be affected by Anicca, the impermanence, it, <clears throat> as people drop into this Anicca experience, um, it's as if everything is pixelated, time is pixelated, and what you're seeing is pixelated, and sound is pixelated, and your thoughts are pixelated, and everything becomes smaller and smaller, like a hive of bees of activity. And there's no, there's nothing present in that. It's all snow on the TV screen. It's just everything is snowy, and it's quite horrifying when you drop into that because there's no refuge. But then there's also nothing to hit, and you're in free fall. And then as you're in free fall, you realize actually, I've always been in free fall. And it's trying to like make it permanent so I could find it secure. It's actually just, I'm in free fall. And so I think that uh, momentarianism is rarer of an experience. But when you drop into that, um, it's more thorough in washing out any type of hope for stability. Except there's stability in the completeness that has always been impermanent. And then you're skydiving without a parachute, but there's no ground, and you're just falling. And who needs the parachute if there's no ground? And so you're just falling. So, and so um, she had her hand up first in the purple or magenta, we'll call it purple. I had an intense feeling of sadness and loss that I was able to just ride with and appreciated uh, the 
the arising of it and then the dissipating of it. Right. And then there was that transition between that. And, and I found myself really longing for the continuation of the experience, but recognizing at some weird level that I had to have an intention to be present with the next one. And I got confused. <laughs> uh, it, 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 the dimensionality, the linearity of moment by moment by moment seems to be useful for me mm. to contain my experience, but sort of what you're talking about here, this uh, groundlessness of um, where, where is my awareness and where should it be? And, yeah. and then I noticed that if I had even just a modicum of intentionality, like giving myself the instruction to just be aware or breathe or whatever that was, that, that brought focus. I'm not quite sure what my question is in all of that, except that I, I, I would love some feedback on what that experience might have been. Yeah. I don't know if I, can, if I can get it exactly. All I can sort of do is resonate over here with my experiences and what you're describing, and that lends some intuition. But um, one thing that sort of was coming up for me as you were describing that, what I thought I was hearing what you were saying, is um, there's a, <clears throat> we don't know it, but there's all sorts of things that our brain is doing all the time to give us a sense of space, a sense of um, accountability, a sense of uh, reliability. And one of the things that this practice does is it begins to um, let go of those assumptions. So we're feeling gravity all the time, yet we get nauseous when an elevator drops too fast or a plane drops too fast. So we don't know it until suddenly it's not there and then it's very disorienting and kind of sickening that we don't have gravity. And there's probably a biological reason for that. But the parallel is suddenly this thing that we've taken for granted is now changing. And in that, it's very, um, it's very disorienting. So there are times in practice between one stable state and the next stable state where we go through and it's just kind of disorienting. And I now have, having gone through them many times, I have enough faith to relax in that destabilized state because it has always landed someplace freer and always reorganized itself to be um, really fine. But as I'm in one state and passing to another, there's a period where I don't have a map. I don't, it's not clear to me. And so as I pass through those experiences now, I go, oh, the last 2,000 times this happened, I was grateful for it. But it was always scary when I went through it. So I'm going to bet on grateful for now <laughs> and then see what happens. So just as I was hearing you just describe um, a little disorientation in, in a transition period, faith comes as we map out all these territories and we get more intimate with ourselves and all these passage, passage points, there, be, there comes a sort of a, a faith in the process 
so then we don't have to look for solutions, we don't have to fix anything. We trust that the actually the right thing is happening in us because we're we're ballpark in the Dharma. It's like I'm I never get it perfect, but I'm I'm close enough in it that it's working on me. And so as I go through those passage points, I've just grown more faith. And then I don't clutch at times when I want more security or want more clarity. To really <laughs> and then the ante keeps going up and so now I'm like like sitting in front of like a hundred people giving a talk and I just like am baffled. Absolutely baffled. And I'm like I'm, if you want me to talk, you got to come up with something because I'm not coming up with anything. So it's all on you, Mister B. Like, <laughs> you got me here, and I'm just like. And often, as I relax into that state, unforeseen things come out of it, but only because I've, I've learned not to grip there. So. Is that trusting in the unfolding? Yes, trusting in the unfolding. And still lock your car. <laughs> um, Barbara, um, a story comes to mind um, as you were speaking. Um, a couple times I've been in automobile accidents, and the last one I had was some years ago. But the car was spinning and spinning. And at that moment, I had to totally let go because there was nothing. There was nothing except to be in that spinning and right. see where it, and not even see where it went, just to be in it. Right. Knowing that there was no knowing. Um, so some of what you're speaking about kind of touched into that experience. Right. Um, I feel you're inviting me to, to kind of live in a, um, a be aware in a more subtle way than I have capacity yet. Sure. Um, this is the A to Z map. <laughs> and so somewhere, we're all on the progress of waking up. Yeah. And there's always an invitation. There's always, I can always intuit that there are people who are describing something that I can kind of intuit, but I can't quite yes. grasp yet. Yes. And then, um, so, yeah. Let's see, let's go to people who haven't had a chance to speak yet. Hi, my name is Jason, and I got a question about the technique of bringing in the delight and the content. Yeah. And so, what I've been doing when I do this in the morning is I I focus on like my thoughts on optimistic, positive thoughts, and I'm I'm excited about this thing that's happening, and you know I love that this person is in my life, and that creates a lot of joy and and happiness. Yeah. Um, and then when I heard you describe it today, it was like it was different. It was a lot more about like um you know, the body's innate, natural joy, delight, content that's already there. Right. And so my question, I'm a little bit confused, like why I want to come here to clarify, you know, what is, what is the practice supposed to be? Is it supposed to be about these, kind of like this cognitive thought, optimistic, creating, you know, positive thoughts, or is it about experiencing what's, what's there in the body? Uh, I, would, I would do whatever we're works. And so <clears throat> given our busy lifestyles, some things are not accessible in daily life, or unless you've practiced a long time, you have an inclination for it, or that time in your life, it's within reach. 
And so some of the things I've experienced meditating on retreat or at other times in my life, I can't access now. So I don't make a goal around that. And I actually practice now in a way that um, it works within the context of the territory I'm in. And so for that, some people find that they don't like loving kindness practice and suddenly it's all they want to do. And then it kind of becomes integrated and it's no longer, it doesn't carry the same. And now they're really into some other thing. So I, I trust sort of the, what you're doing is probably working for you. But in terms of this particular map, um, one of the things that it does is it talks about mental activity being different from mental space. And that's, that's often not largely differentiated unless you're in a, a pretty, unless you have a lot of mindfulness momentum, like on a retreat or a period after a retreat. To know, we could turn the heat up in this room and you'd all start panting. So the, the, the air is hot, but so are the people. And stages, the, the second and the third, the second one is, is about the people getting hot, the activity, the, the, the nuts and bolts being affected by something versus the space around, the space that, that they're arising in. And it's just that, so I'm, what I'm describing, what I'm trying to guide you into, really is a sense there's, I, I, this was not my experience when I first started. I started in the middle of college, very, um, very compacted with, energies and desires and plans and studying and trying to cram as much knowledge into me as I could and a lot of cramming in. And I would sit in the middle of it and it would just be way too much. I would never do that to myself now. There's no way I would tolerate that much pain. Um, but at the time it was normal to do that. Over time, this thing has gotten a lot more spacious. And I, I would never go back to feeling that much compacted energy that I felt when I was 20. But because it was normal for me, I went on a retreat and sat in the middle of all that compactedness. What I see about these particular 16 steps and how they work is that at, there was a time that my body was really opaque to me. And so a lot of the practices that had to do with um, body awareness, I, I could know my hand was hot, but it felt like a foreign object. Now the knowing feels so much more integrated, actually down in the hand. So what I would have called mind before was very upstairs. And now what it feels like mind actually feels like there's, there's spaciousness in my body. There's stuff there, but there's also a type of spaciousness. That spaciousness feels a little bit more aware. And I don't feel the same split between what's knowing and what's being known. So for that, um, in describing your experience is working well for you to gladden your mind by actually doing mental activity that gladdens the mind. In this particular progression, we're trying to actually calm down mental activity. But it, if you calm down your mental activity and you go asleep, then you can't even access the next stages. So you might need to do more brightening of the mind with mental activity so that when you actually stop mental activity, you go into a nice, buoyant presence mm -hmm. as opposed to down into 
um, fatigue or uh, softened torpor. All right, thank you. Um, yes, hi. Um, I wanted to kind of add on to what this gentleman said based on an experience that I had today. Um, when practicing uh, raising up, I wanted to say my vibration more of in, in, in a place of delight. And one thing I realized in my meditation practice lately that I was missing was that very thing. And I find um, that I can easily find a place to relax my body and go deep into my breath and be very present with my breath. But as I'm breathing in, I'm exhaling out, and I find that my body relaxes, but once I come out, sometimes I'm so relaxed or I'm so tranquil that it's almost like a, a low level of unhappiness, yeah. of, of disease, or like, hmm, what was that about? I feel good, but at the same time, something's missing. And so when you shared that today, when I was practicing my breathing, I thought, well, when I inhale and I breathe down and I'm relaxing my body, what happens if I breathe in and I just lightly exhale and continue to breathe upward? And as I breathe more upward, I felt more joy rising or more delight rising. And my body didn't feel so heavy that when the process was over, I felt more light afterwards. Um, so that seemed to work. That seemed to kind of be this intuitive thing that happened. And it wasn't something that I was trying to do necessarily through thought, but just through my breathing itself. Yeah. So I wanted to share that. Yeah, great. And the entire uh, yogic field and the, and the field of Qigong, um, they may be much more sophisticated at developing really beautiful integrative samadhi than we find in the Theravadan world. And it's possible that the Theravadan world, back in the Buddhist time, those practices of yoga were much more um, common. And so one, a few teachers have said that it was so common that it never got recorded. Like, nowhere does the Buddha tell you exactly how to um, bathe your body. It just was kind of assumed that people knew how to do that. So what was recorded was you know, the specific things that he said. And so what you're describing, different ways of breathing, there are so many beautiful techniques of a pranayama in the yogic traditions that do balance the body if it's feeling, if it's feeling uh, tired, if it's feeling imbalanced, if it's feeling there's too much heat in your system, what should you eat, how should you treat yourself so that you come into this more beautiful, holistic balance. And then this is where um, the Buddhist tradition is very strong is actually stronger in going from that type of balance, doing certain penetrative insights that lead to liberation as he understood it. So he's not necessarily a great teacher of preliminary yoga, but his teachings are much more like this penetrative insight. I sometimes think of it that uh, somebody else built the first telescope, but Galileo pointed it at the planets and was very, someone else built the power of a telescope and he improved it some and then pointed it in a very profound direction. 
And I feel like the Buddha took the yogic trainings of his time, improved them so that they would work with his system, and then pointed them at anicca, pointed them at impermanence, pointed them in certain directions that minds did not have the inclination to go into. And so he's building this meditative presence, which is like building your telescope, and then pointing it, not where we usually go with it, but pointing it in directions most people hadn't really thought of, but then finding it completely changed the entire paradigm of what reality looks like and how do you align with it. We have one more question up front and then I want to move on to the next. Oh, back, we'll go back there then to the front. Okay. Um, is it ethically incompatible uh, to be an artist, uh, for example, a singer, and they're they must believe a, a thousand percent in what they're uh, emoting with passion, with all the uh, things that, uh, you know, with joy, with uh, greed, with uh, lust. So um, if you happen to not have the awareness in you, um, then, then how can you step out of that and be a performer? You might discover there are, there are conflicts. There don't have to be conflicts. But you might, you might discover there are conflicts. Um, so I would wait until you discover something. And then you might, it might not be clear to you when you find that there's something incongruent and you explore the incongruency. Okay. And then you might grow through that exploration to find a new compatibility, or you might find, yeah, actually this was, this was useful for me when I was younger, and it's actually not in line with my current understanding. I often wonder why certain musicians had great songs in their 20s and 30s, but then their artistry changed as I got older. Well, why can't I just keep pumping out the great hits? And it's like, well, they were in a certain frame of mind when they were younger, and now they're older. Older is not necessarily better, but those artists come to a different type of of artistic expression as they as they grow. Okay, and then also I I've been in a congregation, not uh, willingly, but to make peace. Uh, so it's difficult for me to always hear, and it has to do with my my bringing how I was brought up. To hear these things said, yet be at peace with them, because I know them, I have a different understanding of it. Yeah, and so there are certain, we have one more question up front. Um, there are certain words that it, it takes a while to find the healthy relationship to some of these um, phrases or understandings in the Pali Canon. I think we're doing a better job at translating words. So this, uh, this word, um, geez, second one in, second one in, yeah, okay. Viraga, um, <clears throat> for example, is dispassion. Like, I'm not sure that's where I want to go. I mean, I think my experience of dispassion looks kind of horrible, like people who kind of lose their passions and they lose their vitality. And the people I know who 
are very free in this Theravada tradition are definitely running lots of vitality. Like the teachers I've had in Burma, they're not dispassionate people. They're not... There is a beam coming out of their eyes. I talk about, when I was in Burma, we talked about these meta high beams, that just like these loving kindness high beams. It's like, there is passion there. In every waking moment, you are teaching, you're taking care of yourself so you can go teach or you can go serve, and you're flying back and forth. It's like, there's something motivating. You have not lost your, there's wind in your sails. But what is this viraga? And you have to understand what raga is. Raga is not just like the passions of life. It's the, it's like you're swimming. And you're caught in the kelp bed in the in the surf and the rocks, and you're like, ah, this is like I can't get out of there. And you're embroiled in it, and you're just desperate in the middle of. That's raga. And some people love sort of if there's pleasure in there, they kind of like that compared to boredom. But it's very, it's a very complicated um, endeavor, raga. And so virag is the relief of that, the relief of feeling so twisted and caught up and torn and knotted up. And so that's when you understand what virag is, it actually does taste better than raga. But if you're comparing a passionate life to one where you're bored and have lost any real reason for living, that's not where we're trying to head. Hi, I've gotten very attached to asking this question, um, and uh, it makes me a little some relief. <laughs> it makes me a little sad to ask it, and excited too. But um, there's a lot that we don't know living on the Earth level, right? you know, you know on, the, on our current level. And I was just wondering how we know that there is nothing which is permanent, and perhaps we're looking for permanence in the things that are impermanent, but that there may be something else. Well, here's in this particular in this tradition, there is something that is that is permanent. There are several things that that are timeless, you could say. And one of them is the Dharma laws are timeless. They have no beginning. They have no ending. They function whether they're known or not known. So Dharma laws are timeless. There is something called nibbana, which get, in Sanskrit is nirvana. And that also has no beginning and no ending. It doesn't have a birth, so it doesn't age, and it doesn't die, it doesn't fall apart. Um, and what happens is as you go through all the sense doors, the six sense doors, including all mental experience, what you find are transient objects. And you find transient objects, you relax in relationship to them. They just start streaming by, and you kind of use them as you need to to keep yourself physically healthy and psychologically healthy, but there's not a lot of attachment. And as you're streaming by, you get to ask the question, is there anything other than this transient existence and all these things coming and going, including myself? Like everything is just transient. And a mind that can actually be comfortable with in relationship to all the transient objects, when it asks the question, is there something other than this? All the transient experiences momentarily cease to grab your attention. And what does grab your attention is a non-transient object or a non-transient experience. And that lasts for so long, and then the mind is not ready to stay in that, in that relationship, and so it goes back into the field of transience. And that's called contact with Nibbana, contact with Nirvana. 
and that happens in our tradition. So in our tradition, there's one thing that's not permanent. I don't, I don't think that does justice to your question because, you know, um, through careful study, I, I used to be um, a molecular biophysicist before I became a Buddhist, and there's nothing at the at the all matter is not only mostly empty space, but down the things that even could possibly exist don't down at the very core of it. And so, as far as we know, nothing actually exists with any type of solidity or permanence. And it's, yeah. Is, is the nirvana similar to um, uh, samadhi? It has some similarities to it. Um, samadhi, until you know, until you can really be submerged in anicca, um, samadhi feels like it's a penultimate experience. Deep samadhi feels like the eternity of now. And you can't imagine there's anything transient about the power of this nowness. And so it feels like you've touched something in, um, permanent when you touch deep samadhi. And in the yoga tradition, they talk about a type of samadhi that goes past that. Um, yeah, so there's a whole conversation about um, deep absorption states and the contact with Nibbana and their similarities. But when you know the two, you, there's actually more going on in samadhi than you could have measured until you know Anicca and um, Nibbana. Thank you. Yeah. So let's uh, stand up for a sec. Let's give these for a body. We're going to go on... We're going to, have to move into a, a slightly intellectual trotting speed <laughs> to do justice to the the sutta.